I mean, this uh, with heavy guns. There are about four of them that came upstairs. And one of them was downstairs monitoring things. They had uh, the four guns and a machete and a knife. I was the only man in the house. I had my wife, my two daughters, and my sister-in-law. So I had four women. A young girl of 11, another one of uh, 16, and my wife and uh, sister-in-law of 27. And I was just telling them, get anything that you want, do whatever you want to do with me, but leave those women and leave those girls. That's Lon Ray Sarajew, who we spoke to in the last episode. He's the chairman of an anti-corruption group based in Nigeria and a really good friend of Debbie's. When we first spoke with him, he had just spoken at a sham trial where charges were levied against him for daring to speak out about corruption in his own country. Lon Ray made public information that was presented in a trial in Milan, Italy, a trial in which I testified. Because of him taking that step to make a public document from Italy publicly available in Nigeria, he has been targeted by those people who probably also profited. It's already presented by J.P. Morgan Chase at a trial. Lanray made it public in Nigeria, and he is being attacked as them saying that he has uh, shared a fake document when it's already been validated by J.P. Morgan Chase and by the trial in Milan. It's when the bad guys start attacking the good guys and Landre is one of the good guys. So let me get this straight. They levy these fake charges against you for forgery. They have no evidence. Now they're cooking up some other story about cyber attacks, which is complete nonsense. Yeah, it's really tough because I also have a young family. It's been extremely traumatic for them. And I've had to continue reassuring them that everything is fine. It could be really very difficult because you say everything is fine and then you fight almost every day. And that really is very unfortunate to the extent that it, it gets the family worried. Two weeks after our first conversation with Lonray, he was brutally attacked in his own home. Armed gunmen burst in, raided his house, and threatened to kill him and his family. This is A Nation for Thieves. I'm Justin Shankaro, and through my awesome ex-FBI agent bestie, Debbie LaPravat, we're looking into kleptocracy across the world and how it affects our lives. Debbie is like a real-life Lara Croft, raiding the hidden wealth of the most powerful people in the world and returning it to their rightful owners. You're going to recover billions of dollars, and there are people that work within that government still that are corrupt, if they know who you are, you know, they could potentially kill you. I will say, and I give the FBI wonderful credit for this, very few people want to kill an FBI agent. You will have the attention of the entire FBI drawn to you if you go after an FBI agent. Doesn't mean it hasn't happened. Plenty of FBI agents, unfortunately, have been killed. 
But in another country, do you really want to create an international incident? And the reality is, if you kill me, the case doesn't go away. There are 14,000 FBI agents. They're very smart. They will pick up the ball and keep running. Now that I've retired, I don't have the security of the FBI. The company I work for now takes extreme measures to protect my safety. I do have kidnap insurance. I follow strict check-in protocols. I make sure that if I'm meeting with a source, they don't know where we're meeting till like 10 or 15 minutes before we're meeting because I don't want to give anybody a heads up to get into a restaurant and pose as the waiter before I show up uh, to meet a source. I don't want to put the people that I'm meeting with at risk. So we communicate through encrypted messaging, messages that can disappear one to five minutes after you've written them. I take security very seriously. I have door jams that blare at 120 decibels if somebody tries to enter my room while I'm in it. There's things I can do in my room so I can tell if anybody's come in through an entrance when I'm not there. When I travel anywhere in the world, any electronic device I have is on me, with me, and in my personal possession from the time I land till the time I leave. I would never leave a laptop in a room, a phone. I carry devices that have rift blocking. Somebody can't scan it next to me. So I protect my phone, my credit card, and my computer with bags that have linings that protect that. And then I have a body tracker. Unfortunately, it's about the size of a brick, so it's rather large. A company can monitor my whereabouts 24 hours a day when I'm out of the country. Worst case scenario, you can track my Fitbit for four days until the battery runs out. I check in with the Century, who I work for now, every couple hours, and they know my itinerary. What do you say to people who would say, well, we're spending our U.S. taxes to support the FBI. The FBI is paid with U.S. taxes. Why are you not just focused on, you know, bad people in the U.S.? Why are you going to these other places around the world and helping those governments when you should just be focused on helping our own country? The great thing about this is that the U.S. taxpayer doesn't pay for the kleptocracy initiative. The money comes out of the asset forfeiture fund. So when we seize $20 million from a drug dealer, when I would seize this money, it sits in the bank for two or three years sometimes while it's being litigated. And all that interest, the United States keeps. And that interest paid for my travel and my investigation as well as the prosecutors who work this violation. So that it wasn't the U.S. tax dollars or, or the U.S. taxpayer on the hook for this money. So it's self-funded then? Yeah, I mean, it basically is self-funded. Obviously, if we put in uh, $100 million from uh, drug deals that we've recovered during the year, where the money that goes in from a Ponzi scheme, an embezzlement, that sits there and still collects interest. The victims are due back the money that we recovered, not the interest. All the money that we get from a drug dealer, all of that goes to all kinds of programs, not only asset recovery and kleptocracy cases and paying for DOJ attorneys to prosecute these cases, but also buys teddy bears for victim programs and bulletproof vests for police stations. So that money is used very well. Debbie, do you think I could have the interest on the first 10 million? No one will even notice. I mean, except for you and I and everybody listening to this podcast. 
The United States has a very unique opportunity. Whenever the money was stolen in U.S. dollars, it almost always circuits through U.S. financial institutions, corresponding bank accounts. But even money that was going from Nigeria to London, London to the U.S., hit two or three U.S. banks en route. It's just the way money moves through the international market. Each one of those transactions gave the United States venue to go after and help our foreign partners recover this money. Why is that? Why does it give the U.S. venue? Well, yeah, because, I mean, it hit the United States. They are using U.S. commerce and U.S. financial institutions to launder their money, which means a criminal act is occurring within the United States as well. Even if they're overseas? Oh, yeah, because by them choosing to launder their money in U.S. dollars, it hit to U.S. banks en route. So if you're sending money from London to Switzerland, well, UBS Switzerland banks at UBS New York. The Bank of Nigeria might bank at Bank of America. So for that money to go to Switzerland, it goes from Nigeria to Bank of America, Bank of America to UBS New York for further credit to Switzerland. For every single transaction, I have to show how the money hit the U.S. Debbie was in Nigeria working on recovering the assets of ex-president Sani Abacha when she first met Lonray. He is now known as one of the country's most prominent anti-corruption activists. It was just a real honor for me to meet you because being in D.C., I fly into countries, I work cases with you and my counterparts with the EFCC, but then I go back. I go back to D.C. and I continue to fight corruption from there. I was so honored to meet you because you're there on the ground and you're doing the work there. And obviously that's a bigger threat to anti-corruption activists uh, when they're in country. Lonre has been under constant threat of persecution or worse because of his work exposing kleptocrats. These things are just done out of uh, natural instincts, like I said earlier, and out of my real concern for the ordinary people here out of what I see people suffer every day in terms of poverty, in terms of deprivation, in terms of environmental hazard, in terms of the lack of basic facility infrastructure and the need of people. I mean, how people get to suffer in the midst of the plenty that we have. It's, um, for me, inspirational and motivational to see that, you know, as some of these things, uh, as little as I consider them, really recognized by uh, people within the community. One of the things that my wife originally said when they started, you are actually really striking the right chord for some of these guys to come after you. It means you have annoyed some of those really criminals as well. Very motivational to continue punching the box. After we first spoke with Lonre, the very real consequences of speaking truth and holding powerful people to account were realized. I was originally charged with four accounts, uh, charged cyber stalking, for documents that I've known was fake. And then the same thing with an interview. They then dropped two of the charges. Obviously, they couldn't sustain either of them. So leaving it with two, and we still went to court to challenge the two. 
there was an attempt to ensure that I was detained, where the judge also refused uh, to decide on the bail application on the day that we were in court. And it took my lawyer having to stand up in court and accuse the judge of assisting those who filed the charges. What was the judge's reaction when your lawyer is pretty much accusing her of being part of the other side and trying to silence you? She said, oh, I don't know anything about that. And my lawyer said, I know, and I stand by my statement, and I'm actually also speaking from the bar. So when he says I'm speaking from the bar as a lawyer, it means that I'm ready to stake everything here to defend what I've just said, and he's ready to go to any length to also pursue that statement. That, for me, was when the judge seems to realize that this is actually a very serious matter. You can see the, the level of desperation possibly combinated to what happened on the night of 28. I was fast asleep with my wife in my room. My kids and my sister-in-law were in their rooms. I just got the, the tap on the bed saying, Mr. Man, get up. It seems like a dream. That, that's the most ridiculous thing. I, I personally checked with the doors and locked the door. And I was like, what is this? I was going to get up in anger. And then the guy with the shotgun does put it to my head and said, just stay where you are. I said, what is this? And one of them just said, will you keep quiet? And by that time, they already started picking my, my phones, you know, my laptops, all the laptops in the house, the iPads in the house, my wife's phone my office back with all the documents in it. They were asking, okay, so yeah, where is your money? Got my wife to get out of bed uh, to go and give them some of our jewelries and whatever. Went to my daughter's room and my daughter, one of them actually shouted and they said she should keep quiet. I mean, this uh, with Heavy guns, like they had about, there were about four of them that came upstairs. I think one of them was downstairs monitoring things. They had uh, the four guns and the machete and the knife. I was the only man in the house. So I, I had my wife, my two daughters, and my sister-in-law. So I had four women, a young girl of 11, another one of uh, 16, and my wife and the sister-in-law of 27. So the first thing was how to protect those women. They were my immediate priority. I was just telling them, get anything that you want, do whatever you want to do with me, but leave those women and leave those girls. So he instructed the lieutenants to have my hands tied, so my wrists were tied, and then they had another one to my arm tied, and then I was made to face down on the bed. The same thing was done to, to my wife, and my children were locked up in, in the room. And they asked for the car key, check with the cars, and one of them said, why don't we just shoot him in the leg if we're not going to shoot him anywhere else? And the guy who led the group just said, no, don't worry, just, just leave him. Something tells me he's innocent. And the one who was inquiring, maybe they should actually shoot me in the leg, just hit me on the head. 
the other guy, which is, who was the group leader, just said, no, no, stop it. Let's go. Let's let's get out of here. I was still just calling on the, the tenants in the other apartments behind mine to be sure that they are fine. I was going to ask if everything is fine with them. And I was surprised that we were the one waking them up. So I was shocked. Did they come to your apartment? They said, no, nobody. Did you hear what was happening? No, nobody heard anything. I was like, oh, okay, this is good. So it means that it is like only here that they came to. Nobody knew anything until I was calling them. So it was very clear that this was a deliberate. It's such a traumatic thing that um, you, you really don't want to remember. I mean, my wife was really traumatized and she was actually pleading while I was worried about her. She was also worried about them inflicting anything on me. And she was pleading, please don't hurt him. Please don't do anything to him. During the petition and the complaint, we reported to the police. We had it incidented including even for them to track the phones. Um, but it's been some funny stories from one day or the other to the other. It's been over a month. There's really nothing so far from the police. We've not heard anything from the police commissioner. Have they arrested the attackers? No, nothing. And for people who don't realize, the police commissioner and the police they're part of the Ministry of Justice. And who's in charge of the Ministry of Justice? The current Attorney General, who's going after Lonray. Due to the threat he and his family face, Lonray was forced to flee Nigeria. I'm incredibly optimistic in terms of dealing with the local challenge and problem in Nigeria without having any reason to leave the country. I must confess, I had several offers at the same time, warnings that sometimes when you get involved uh, with these characters and you move up to this level of advocacy, the judicial or the administration of criminal justice system it is not usually just there to do justice or to protect or to remedy some of the situation or to be totally reliable in terms of dealing with uh, not just the threat, but even pursuing, you know, the accountability advocacy to the logical conclusion. I have had offers to go to the US or wherever before now, which I must confess to you that I have really politely turned down, believing that, you know, I mean, we have the truth, uh, we have the evidence, we have the facts. So believing strongly that we can actually stand up to the whole attack and ensure that we get not only justice for the country, but at the same time also to motivate other advocates who would want to engage in, in the activism and also at the same time uh, human rights protection. But it is becoming increasingly clear I am strongly now convinced that the level of compromise uh, is beyond, you know, what I assumed it to be. It is also becoming increasingly clear that we really don't have the system that, that is independent, that, that is upright, that is dependable 
to deal with uh, the threat of fighting for human rights, justice, uh, and at the same time, accountability within, within the country. It is very unfortunate. That is what we're having to deal with now. How does that make you feel to have to leave your country? The fight will have to continue. The struggle will have to continue. We're not going to, in any way, allow them to get away with this level of atrocities. We're not going to allow them to change uh, the narrative of our country and also have this free reign of terror that would uh, not only shut down the civic space, but would make it difficult for people to hold um, public office holders accountable. For me, uh, wherever it is, either within Nigeria or outside Nigeria, without the family uh, being exposed to this level of threats, I can assure you that I would have uh, continued doing what uh, I'm doing. I mean, we did go in on myself alone, uh, but with the family that is just already been exposed to the trauma and the threats, it is just going to be for me any decision taken to first and foremost protect them from any form of undue attack. They don't in any way deserve uh, being a member of my family shouldn't in any way be a basis for them to be exposed uh, or due to any form of terror attack. With regards to the advocacy that we have embarked upon, I can assure you that it's still going to continue. The very first thing when we found out that Lanray had his home broken into and was assaulted was security. It's so hard to internalize what the trauma is that goes along with waking up to the shotgun to your head, Lanre. Everyone who works in this community, who works to fight anti-corruption, recognizes the threat. And you might be able to accept that threat for yourself, but it's not acceptable for your family. They didn't sign on for this all the time, right? Your biggest concern is for that. Lonray and I have just maintained communication as well as several of our other good friends in the anti-corruption world. We've provided him options. Where's the best place for Lonray and his family? We've been uh, just keeping the lines of communication open. We all want him and his family safe. It comes down to where does Lonray feel the safest and is the best choice for him and his family? And then secondly, where does that allow him to continue to fight? Because his fight isn't over in Nigeria. Lonray, would you still consider yourself an optimist? I am. I have not changed. People like Lonray continue to fight every day for their country, despite the extremely real threat. And it's not just advocates like Lonray who face security threats. It's even law enforcement who chase these people down and face extreme danger. I mean, I laugh because there are moments in FBI careers where it is totally TV FBI, right? I'm on a plane, I'm on a helicopter, I'm flying to another country. And then there's three months of looking through 57 boxes of bank records. Riveting television? No, it's not. But I have to condense that 57 pages down into 
when Mohammed Abacha was provided with $700 million, which he was told to get out of the country, some of that money went to a bureau de change, which is a money exchange business in Abuja. From there, Mr. Duaro owned that bureau de change. He transferred money into bank accounts in London. Okay, now I need the bank accounts in London because I don't have those. I have 57 boxes of Swiss documents. I have to work with my counterparts now at the, either at the time it was, I was working with Scotland Yard detectives. They're fantastic. And then later with the National Crime Agency, they call me Debs. I'm like, am I plural? Is there more than one of me? (laughs) Um, uh, But they're like, Debs, this is brilliant, come on. They would help me get the bank records out of the UK. I've known Deb, Debs is Debs, and she knows me as JB, and that's how we've talked for a long, long time. JB is Jonathan Benton. He's Debbie's counterpart at Scotland Yard. They've worked together for years, tracking down bad guys across the world. Some refer to him as the real-life James Bond. Bond. James Bond. Actually, I'm the only one who refers to him as the real-life James Bond. My full name is Jonathan Benton. I'm a former senior detective from New Scotland Yard and the UK's National Crime Agency. I was a detective superintendent and head of the UK's International Corruption Unit and prior to that, our other sort of anti-corruption enforcement efforts based at New Scotland Yard. Debs and I met each other many, many years ago because I'm sure, as Debs has told you, whoever we investigated, you'd be pretty damn sure they'd have a footprint both in London and the US. And therefore, it gave us opportunity to work together on many cases. And I think she was the first American I trusted. In 2017, John and I were in Nairobi, Kenya. It's the stuff you see on TV. Yes, you know, we went to a location, we met a source. The source handed us something under the table, documents that we needed to get our hands on. John and I were in the office of a government official when we hear, boom! I am ready to hit the ground, right? I think we're taking incoming. We're like, what was that? And there were protests against the recall of a recent election in Nairobi. John and I uh, made our way back to the hotel and we're standing on the balcony of the hotel and there is tear gas being shot to disperse the protesters. And there's smoke coming up, uh, rocking up to where we were at. I mean, you don't take it for granted, but is what it is. That is the life you have when you're working these cases. I remember when we were in the vehicle, we were stuck in the middle of the riot. Well, it's the police were battering everybody and the rioters were smashing up vehicles and letting off the tear gas going everywhere. And we just trying to encourage the driver to navigate around. In reality, it, it put us back in our own worlds. We would have been in armoured vehicles with drivers that could just put their foot down and are trained to get out of the situation and to protect the occupants of the vehicle. We were in some Nissan bloody bastard looking at each other going, right, how are we going to get ourselves out of this one? Told you, James Bond. We have this special relationship, as you know. 
And really, on an operational level, we do have a very, very special relationship. We work very, very closely. But let's not also forget, we are exceptionally competitive against each other as well. This was the first time working with someone that we were like, look, she's not going to steal my jobs. And we're just actually going to be really sensible and work together on these. That's what we did, didn't we, Debs? Oh, we were so lucky. First of all, yes, I trust my life to John Benton. As John knows, because he's been threatened by subjects in the past, that's saying something to know that other police officers uh, have your back. This sort of kleptocracy, corruption stuff is such high stakes. Debs and I will tell you, even work we've done together, because we obviously left law enforcement and then carried on working together. It's such high stakes. I always describe it, you know, really, really powerful people who are used to get in their own way, come what may, with really deep pockets, with no moral compass whatsoever and are prepared to do absolutely anything. For them to go, let's employ some dirty, corrupt, former police officers to try and infiltrate this investigation and try and derail it and say the bribes are being paid. That is not, that's not beyond the pale. We've faced all that in these cases. I've got lots of security cameras around my house and things like that. I've had trips and people saying they know where my family is, know where my son goes to school and things like that. John and Debbie, or should I say Debs, started working together on the Abacha case in Nigeria. One of their higher profile cases was taking down former Nigerian Petroleum Minister Diazani Alison Manaweke, who allegedly stole in excess of $20 billion. She was a big fish, very, very powerful woman, still is. If you have your hand on the country's purse, so its principal revenue stream, you are very, very powerful. Were you there for her arrest? No, I don't know. I was the guy running it all. I must have had about 100 people on the ground on the day, all over different places. You know, Debs and I worked together so that we could do it coordinate it across the US and then in Nigeria, which again, really was unprecedented, it hadn't been done. My bit's the just making sure the orchestra plays nice music together. She thought she was completely untouchable. She certainly didn't expect what was coming her way. When I was investigating my component from the US, I was explaining to the FBI, I said, this woman makes almost $500 million a month. And they're like, you mean a year? I'm like, no, a month. Allegedly, she was getting kickbacks and bribes from every oil lifting contract, from every gas station that sold gas in the country. John and his team was uh, working on her because she was currently in the UK. She had bought several UK properties But in the United States, we were looking at the people who were funneling money to her. And we found that Kola Aluko, who owned two Swiss-based oil companies, had received incredibly lucrative Nigerian oil contracts. He owned that 65-meter super yacht called the Galactica Star that the U.S. was able to seize working with Nigeria. 
as well as some a $57 million New York penthouse and a mansion. Those two cases, all of the money was from the same pot. It was Nigerian oil corruption. A lot of people don't kind of quite realize how corruption works and how, how it's actually modeled and how you actually do it. Of course, it's a lot more complicated than just handing out the contracts. Well, handing out these contracts, knowing that you're definitely getting your big cut. I used to sit on my phone and come home and look, and I used to just see what she'd been, which news conferences she'd been speaking at or where she'd been. She's a very high-profile woman, and she'd be on TV all the time. She's a very attractive woman, and she'd very, I suspect, very matriarchal, I suspect. Every single time I saw her, she had a different piece of jewellery you could look at, and then you'd look at the designer, because it was often made by the same guy who was a designer for the stars in Hollywood. You look at his jewellery, and then funny, funny enough, when we looked at Christopher Ray, what other business did Christopher Ray diversify in? And it's a natural segue. You make jewellery for the stars, and you also produce oil. Wait a sec. The guy who made jewelry also had an oil field in Nigeria? Yeah. He was making jewelry for celebrities, but then he was maybe gifted an oil field by this minister? That's unbelievable. She used to have these really elaborate bits of jewelry, different every single time. And then when you looked at it online or similar jewelry, it was like 30, 40, 100,000 pounds a piece, $100,000 a piece, you know, often like. What most people would spend on a car, she would spend on a necklace. And in fact, of course, she didn't spend it on a necklace. She would never have spent a single penny. Matawake allegedly gifted one of the most lucrative oil contracts in Nigeria to designer Chris Eyre, breaking almost every one of her own rules that were designed to keep corruption out of Nigerian oil. Later, when I authorized all the arrests and the raids, I managed to get her property raided in Abuja. It took a lot of effort to get that done at the same, similar time without any of it leaking out beforehand, if you can imagine. I think it was seven handmade suitcases rammed full, absolutely full of this jewelry. Watches, Rolex, what everything. Millions and millions of pounds of the jewelry. I later went back and saw some of it. We used to go to Abuja quite often. I remember sitting in a room looking at this stuff and just thinking, oh my God, you know, this country. This is like the real sad side of this. Like Debs, we traveled all over Africa. We've been all over the world many, 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 many times. And you wander around the streets of Nigeria, and the people are amazing. The young people are amazing. But there's like electricity for four hours a day. And there's still open sewers in parts, you know, the town. The infrastructure's half done. The roads are not built properly to the right standard because somebody skimmed off a load of money so the contractors only laid down half the tarmac that they were going to lay down. And road's a bit of a dodgy road. And then there's this woman with seven cases, full, full of jewellery. Probably wears some of it once and never wear it again. It's kind of wrong, don't you think? 
there was every indication that some of the money that she made in bribes and kickbacks was being funneled into the re-election campaign of the then president, good luck Jonathan. And that it's very possible that the attorney general at the time, Mohamed Adoke in Nigeria, was also benefiting from some of these contracts. If good luck Jonathan had been reelected, she would have still been the Minister of Petroleum. You know, there's so many dynamics that go into these uh, investigations, these takedowns and arrests, and sometimes bribes couldn't look like seven luxury suitcases full of jewelry. Whenever you travel, because there's a risk there, you have to be in a, in a vehicle that's of a certain safety category so that if anybody does try and jump out and kill you, you know, you, you might be protected to some extent. I was waiting for an embassy card to come. The head of the EFCC at the time said to me, oh, my driver will take you, my car, which he hasn't bulletproof four by four. So I get in it, and I'm along. next thing, there's a phone, his driver gets a phone call, and he turns around to me and says, sir, sir, we have to go to the Ministry of Justice. And I'm like, why? He almost didn't want to tell me, and then he said, the Attorney General would like to see, he has heard you are in town, would like to meet with you. And I thought, hang on a minute, no way. He'd been trying to come to London to meet me. I was quite senior but I definitely, definitely wasn't that senior. It's not really worthy of, like, just popping in and having a cup of tea with an attorney general. It doesn't work that way. I knew why the attorney general wanted to see me. He knew why he wanted to see me, because he knew I was investigating Donatete, and he knew there were links that came back his way. Very pleasant, very smart guy. I mean, I rang the embassy and I said, like, look, what do I do? Do I cause a diplomatic incident and refuse to go? and just say, demand that you drive me back to the, you know, the High Commission now. Or do I stay in the vehicle and let him take me there and I just go meet the Attorney General, as random as that is. The decision was diplomatic, as one would expect, and said, go and see him and just you know, take notes and say this is not the right protocol. So I did go and see him. He, and he basically was trying to find out whether he was going to be arrested if he came to England. In a very circuitous way, he was asking all sorts of, you know, it was almost like a comedy sketch where I'm sat there with a notepad and I said, well, you'll understand, Attorney General, Your Excellency, I've got to write everything down so I can report back to the High Commission and he was almost looking at me saying, well, you don't actually have to write everything down, do you? I am amazed by how many people are in the know and how they keep it all secret. I can't even keep my passcode secret. If you're really powerful and you're right at the top, you've got your hands on your purse strings, you can knit. And, and I actually had somebody inside Nigeria that gave me the figures of what had been missing from the central bank. And it was a phenomenal amount of money during her period in office, and good luck, Jonathan's right. Now, if you are effectively stealing all of that, you also have to pay off a lot of people. The fact is that everybody is out to stick a knife in your back. If you're a corrupt politician, you are really, really 
hard, hard, tough person. You've got to be because you're, you're a criminal. But also, just to survive in that environment, to be able to survive, because others know what you've done. They know what you're doing. And therefore, you have to make agreement. And sometimes the way it works with these is you don't get the money straight away. So if you're selling an oil prospecting license, the kind of cash cow, the time the money arrives is really when the oil companies stump up the cash for the actual license and the bit of land either on the land or often a bit of seabed, which they're then going to drill into and extract the oil from. We were monitoring all the money. What you see is it's a bit like rigging the lottery. I'm going to get a hundred million payout. As soon as I get that hundred million, I've then got to pay a number of people off to be able to make sure that I still have my kind of freedom and nobody's going to stab me in the back. And that's exactly how it works. It's my turn to eat is the Kona syndrome. I get into office, everybody before me's done it. It's my turn to do it now. It's my turn to eat. It's my turn to eat at the table. Because everybody else has done it, because the way it works, everybody knows that you're up to it and therefore they will pay it off. How do you work together on, on a case? How did you work together on a botcha and other cases? What is the coordination effort like? It's traveling back and forth. I mean, as John said, he'd be in a command, uh, like a room that, you know, is sensitive to sound so we can't be overheard and that is limited access. And we sit in these rooms and we discuss the cases. John and I got along so well because it was full disclosure. Look, this is who I'm looking at. This is the evidence that I have so far. Our countries are uh, requesting mutual legal assistance from each other so that we can openly share the evidence that we're collecting. It's like, okay, look, Mataweke has a lot of her money in the United States. The jeweler who was allegedly bribing her with all this jewelry was from California. So we have that aspect of the case, but we knew that Mataweke and three or four of her inner circle and family members were in London. And we knew that John and his group was covering that aspect. He had the person in his location. We just coordinate things so that our genuine dual efforts are successful. John, how is the relationship between the UK and the US in fighting kleptocracy? It's pretty amazing, really. But what I would say is a lot of this is also, in reality, it's also down to personal relationship. Diplomatically, everybody talks about cooperation and they talk about fighting things together, you know, great, et cetera, et cetera, and longstanding a lot of this is really down to relationships and you've got to really trust each other. That's why Debs and I, you know, we're such good friends now. We trust each other implicitly. I can't stress how important that trust is because you sort of bounce things off each other and work out how you're going to do it, how you're going to overcome problems, challenges we're facing, right? Well, what could we do here? You kind of go through all different, all the different scenarios and just go, well, what's the best way of doing this? Is it best that you take this bit on and I'll take this, you know, this side of it? That's not just formal working together. That's actually trust, which is, takes time to build. We put the work first. It's not about ego. 
we both had jobs we loved and felt that we were doing the right thing. So we came at it that way from both sides. I think that's a really important point. When we both retired, we both worked together again at the Century. Debs and I were traveling around Africa together and it was pretty cool because we were actually then were back at the coalface. Didn't have like a team of loads of people to manage. We just would work in ourselves and it was good fun. You and Debs, in my opinion, lived this kind of James Bond life, really taking down these corrupt kleptocrats around the world. What is the impact to your family and your children? Because if you're traveling so much, I mean, this work is incredibly intense and time consuming. How does it impact your family? I think like in a lot of these jobs, it takes its toll eventually. It's tough going. I've missed just about every important event there is. I've never been there. It's very sad. But I am there now. And now I'm retired. But I, for years and years and years, I was in the back of a plane going somewhere or I was missing something. I used to work the most horrendous hours. Often, sometimes in places where nobody could communicate with me. But people in the military do it, don't they? It's slightly different in the military. I don't think you bring the threat home with you quite as much necessarily. But you've obviously got a greater threat on the ground if you're in a war zone. And you got to watch your back all the time. When Debbie first called me to tell me about who John was, she made it really clear just how dangerous this line of work can be. He was on a motorcycle and somebody hit and ran him and they're uh, pretty sure it was one of his targets and he was in the hospital for a long time. I think that's where he met his wife, Alex. There's been attempts on his life. He has back pain and stuff from it today. Deborah and John live under this threat their whole lives, even now, despite the fact they're no longer working directly in law enforcement. These corrupt officials around the world are doing everything they can to silence as many people as possible. No wonder I didn't know anything about it. I don't think the public realize the volume and scale. Even if we talk about sort of Russian stuff at the moment, the amount of Russian money that's here, and particularly in London, because London grad, as it's sometimes called, because of the amount of Russian money that's in London, don't get me wrong, there are some many, many legitimate, you know, Russian business people, but there's also plenty of kleptocrats as well. I think some people are trying to say it. They really do. I work with, you know, an NGO. I write stuff, we speak publicly, we do lots of things, you know, and there's, there's some really good work being done by some of the investigative journalists like International Consulting Investigative Journalism the Organised Crime Direction Reporting Partnership. They are trying to speak out, but it's a bit like finding, you know, like fraud. People sometimes see it as victimless, but what they don't see is if just on a fraud case, they don't see the eight-year-old that's been lost all her life savings because somebody's convinced her that she'd invest in something, which is all a big scam. They don't necessarily see that. And even sometimes the authorities sadly see it as victimless. And I think it's the same for all this, a lot of this corruption. 
people should care. You know, a lot of them just thinks it doesn't affect them. Look at how much money from Venezuela came in in Miami and it changed the real estate market. Look at how much money from China came in and affected the California market. So if you're living in those areas, it certainly affects you because you can't buy a condo there because somebody came in with cash and paid 100,000 over value. Remember that a couple of years ago. I mean, even still the market in California is so crazy, the real estate prices. And they were saying a lot of it was because of you know Chinese money that had come in. They were trying to offshore their capital here and driving up the prices. So if you live here, you can't afford anything. Yeah, 70% of luxury properties in 2015, I think in California were sold to Chinese nationals. Or there was a 70% increase of sales to Chinese nationals in 2015. Is the FBI investigating that? I would be. And if I were still there, I mean, because a lot of those, okay, well, you, you just bought a property, that's fine. But how many of those were kleptocrats? It was either the Financial Times or the New York Times. They did a really good article several years ago on the condos at the Time Warner building in New York. 137 condos within this building are uh, in the name of LLCs. Two of them, like one is Tom Brady and one is Jimmy Buffett. And you can say, well, okay, I can understand why Jimmy Buffett wouldn't want a bunch of parrot heads knocking on his door at 3 a.m. <laughs> uh, or, you know, Mr. Brady and his wife would prefer a little privacy. But one of them was a member of a Sinaloa drug cartel. One of them was a Russian oligarch. There was an, a third guy. Let's just start looking at those three condos. And we found out around the same time that Iran was a 40% owner of a New York building. I've long said this, victims of corruption don't have a voice. It's kind of, oh, somebody's bribed someone, so a business has paid a bribe and it shouldn't have done. No, 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 no. A business has massively overcharged for a service that it's going to deliver half the service because it knows it's got to pay bribes. So therefore, the actual person on the ground that thought they were going to get clean water is now only getting semi-clean water, or they're only getting electricity for half the day, or they're only getting half a road built. That's how it works. The bribes are paid, but they're paid by the poorest and or they just don't get the public services they need. Or they even, worse still, the country ends up falling apart and they live in a war zone. So they don't have a voice. You look at stuff that's happened in Sudan and South Sudan and Central African Republic and DRC. If you're from a village in South Sudan and you've had the military come storming through your village, kill every single man, and boy, and then rape every single woman. Where's your voice? Where's your voice? Next, on A Nation for Thieves. In December of 2007, I get a phone call from my good friend, Linda Samuel. Linda was the chief of the asset forfeiture money laundering section at DOJ. She's like, Debbie, we have a request from the government of Bangladesh. They would like us to help them fight corruption in their country we talked to, you know, my management at the FBI, and they're like, yeah, this, this is a good thing. Weeks later, Linda and I were on the 20-hour flight from Washington, Dulles to Dhaka, Bangladesh. A Nation for Thieves is narrated by myself, Justin Shankaro, with Deborah La Pravat. Produced by Charlie Webster and Jackson McLennan. Edited by Nicholas Palella. 
Music by Sean Hedinger. Executive producers, Charlie Webster, Justin Shankaro, Stephen Neely, and Deborah LaPravat. Lionsgate Sound, engineered by Pilgrim Media Group. <laughs>